Well, it's a joy to be with you this morning and preaching God's word here in Psalm chapter 17. It's been said that to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And I think that's an apt metaphor. Just like breathing is essential to our existence as human beings, prayer is a basic and vital part of our existence as Christians. Prayer should be second nature to us. But while many of us would wholeheartedly agree about the importance of prayer, at the same time, many of us struggle to actually pray as often as we should. And I think this stems from at least two reasons common in the church today. First is that we don't always have a good understanding of what prayer is. In other words, we lack a proper theology of prayer. And secondly, when we pray, we don't know what to say or how to say it. We struggle to find the words to say when we're in need, and so we say little or nothing at all. So today, I want to look at Psalm 17 with you and help us to have a better understanding of prayer and a better practice of prayer. And before I begin, I want to admit to you that preaching a sermon on prayer makes me feel like a little bit of a hypocrite. I do not have a perfect prayer life. I would like to think that over my Christian life, I have improved in my practice of prayer, but I honestly struggle at times to pray as I ought to. So this message today is for the whole church, for all of us, to hear what God would say about prayer. Now the Psalter, the book of Psalms, has long been considered the go-to book of the Bible on prayer. From praise and thanksgiving to crying out for mercy and grace, all your prayer needs can be found in the Psalms. Some Psalms have prayer-like sections interspersed with other writing, and some are full prayers in themselves. This Psalm, Psalm 17, is pure prayer. And so today's sermon is titled, A Pattern for Prayer. This Psalm, this prayer of David, provides a blueprint for us as we call out to God in prayer. We see here a pattern for prayer, one that in many ways resembles the Lord's prayer. And we see a purpose, if not the greatest purpose, of prayer in the end. So let's begin with Psalm 17 by looking at verses 1 and 2. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. The first thing we see here is David's plea. In this time of crisis, in light of unjust verbal and physical attacks against him, David cries out to God for help. And three times he cries out, calls out to God, hear my cause, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer. He repeats himself over and over and over, like a child trying to get your attention might do. Now, my two-year-old daughter, Evie, she is in that stage right now where she wants your attention whenever she does something new. And so the other day, it was a really high jump that she had done. And I was in the kitchen making dinner when she came in and she said, Daddy, Daddy, look. And so I glanced over at her 
but at the same time kind of kept doing what I was doing as far as dinner. But that wasn't good enough. And so she cried out, Daddy, Daddy, watch me. So I took my attention away from what I was doing, and I watched her jump. But still, that just wasn't quite good enough. She said, Daddy, Daddy, watch my big jump. So I watched her jump. I gave her a round of applause and said, what a good jump, Evie. Finally, she was satisfied. Now, David didn't have to repeat himself because God was otherwise distracted. But his repetition helps to underscore the importance of his plea. Just like God is described in the Bible, not as just holy, but as holy, holy, holy. The threefold formula is a literary device to bring great emphasis on the point. And in a likewise manner, David repeats himself three times. Hear me, God. Pay attention to me, God. Listen to me, God. David desperately wants God to hear his cry. And the language of crying also shows us the intensity and the seriousness of this prayer. We're all familiar with crying, whether as an adult or as a child. And crying is filled with emotion. This is a desperate plea from David. Charles Spurgeon had a great, great quote on this verse where he said, Who can resist a cry? A real, hearty, bitter, piteous cry might almost melt a rock. There can be no fear of its prevalence with our Heavenly Father. A cry is our earliest utterance and in many ways the most natural of human sounds. If our prayer should, like the infant's cry, be more natural than intelligent and more earnest than elegant, it will be nonetheless eloquent with God. There is a mighty power in a child's cry to prevail with a parent's heart. And many of us know that from experience. And that's how prayer should begin, by crying out to God, our Father. When Jesus' disciples said to him, Lord, teach us how to pray, he replied, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer begins with calling out to God, our Father. We see this both in the Lord's Prayer and here in Psalm 17. We also see echoes of the petitions, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, here in verses 1 and 2. To pray, hallowed be your name, can otherwise be translated, I pray that your name would be honored. It means being more concerned with honoring God's reputation in the world than your own reputation. And to pray for the advance of God's kingdom and his will on earth is to bring our lives into accordance with God's rules. And we, say, we see David doing that when he says, from your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. It's like he's saying, God, I refuse to take matters into my own hand. I will wait for vindication to come from your presence. I want to know that this is your work and not mine. I want your name to be great, not mine. Now, we don't know precisely when this psalm was written or what problem David was addressing, but it certainly could have been during the time when King Saul was pursuing David. And as a brief recap of that story, Saul was the first king of the nation of Israel. He had been chosen by God and anointed by the priest Samuel to lead the nation. But after starting out as a strong and wise leader, 
he fell into arrogance and sin. So God chose a new king, and David, who was just a young shepherd boy at the time, was anointed by Samuel to become the next king of Israel. David went on to conquer Goliath and grew in stature and might, but Saul was still king, and he grew jealous of David. So on numerous occasions, he attempted to kill David, eventually leading David to flee from place to place to escape Saul's wrath. And if you're familiar with the story, you might recall that on two different occasions, David had an opportunity to kill Saul himself. In the first instance, Saul had taken 3,000 chosen men in search of David. And at one point, Saul took a break and went into a cave to relieve himself. David happened to be hiding in that very cave, and he came so close to Saul as to be able to cut off a corner of his robe. And after Saul had exited the cave, David came out and called out to him, saying, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. And this happened a second time, when Saul again pursued David with 3,000 chosen men. This time, David had an opportunity, opportunity to take matters into his own hand when he and Abishai, a soldier of his, snuck into Saul's camp at night while they were all sleeping. And listen to what happened. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. So you see, David had at least two opportunities to take matters into his own hand. He had already been chosen and anointed as the new king of Israel. And Saul had already attempted to kill David. And now David was being unjustly vilified and pursued by Saul. By all human measures, David would have been justified in killing Saul before he himself was killed. But David chose to call and wait on God for his vindication, rather than taking matters into his own hand. He was more concerned with honoring God's reputation in the world than his own. He was more concerned with God's kingdom and God's will than his own. Let's move on here and look at verses 3 through 5. It reads, You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. So here, after pleading with God for help, David moves on to declare his posture, his position in this predicament. He shows his position of innocence, which stands in contrast to his enemies but in alignment with God's character. David uses the language of trying, testing, and visiting 
as a picture of all-encompassing examination in his life. He has not thought, spoken, or done any evil in this situation. Now, this isn't to say that David considers himself to be without sin. Because despite the fact that David was a man after God's own heart, he's also remembered as one of history's greatest sinners. Perhaps the most egregious example was his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. David, after doing that, could have just gone on with his life. I mean, he was the king, right? He could have ignored his wrongdoing and his sin. But when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, David responded by saying, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And there are several examples in the Psalms of what we call penitential Psalms or Psalms of confession from David. And Psalm 32 gives us another example where David wrote, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So David isn't claiming here in Psalm 17 that he is completely innocent or without sin. None but Jesus Christ can claim to be perfectly innocent. Rather, he is proclaiming his innocence in this particular situation against the charges being brought against him. And he is coming to God with a clean heart, a repentant heart. He allowed God to test his heart, and as a result, he now comes with great confidence in this prayer. And again, we see echoes of the Lord's prayer here. Jesus taught his disciples to pray for forgiveness of their debts, their trespasses, their sins, to have a heart of confession and repentance. Open and unconfessed sin is a great barrier to prayer. We cannot come before God without confession and repentance and expect him to hear us. Psalm 66 reminds us of this when it says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And the Apostle Peter tells us that if husbands do not treat their wives in a godly way, the Lord will pay no heed to their prayers. Unconfessed, unrepentant sins in your life can hinder your prayers. So confess and forsake known sin in your lives. Examine your guilty feelings in light of scripture. Deal with the sin God's word reveals. This should be a regular part of your life. First John speaks of confession of sin as an ongoing characteristic of the Christian life. John wrote, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So is confession and repentance a part of your Christian life? We should be daily repenters because we are daily sinners. So David's posture here is one of innocence in this situation. His enemies have attacked him both verbally and physically, yet he has not retaliated on his own. And he is coming with a clear conscience, a clean heart before God, having confessed and repented of his sin. 
Let's look at the next section here, verses 6 through 9. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. Here we see David's prompting, David's prompting of God to act in accordance with his promises. Perhaps the best, most succinct definition of prayer that I've come across is that prayer is calling on God to come through on his promise. Prayer is calling on God to come through on his promise. And we see an example of David doing just that right here. First, he says, I will call upon you, for you will answer me. You know, God has promised to answer us when we pray according to his will. In 1 John chapter 5, for instance, we read, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. We can be assured of God's response when we pray according to his will, when our requests are in alignment with his witness and his word. David is calling on God with full expectation that God will come through on his promise to answer him. To answer him when he calls. David is confident that God will come through on this promise. The second promise David calls on God to come through on is to show his love. He says, wondrously show your steadfast love. And in the next verse, he says, keep me as the apple of your eye, a touching image of love and care. You see, David is going through a trial with unloving enemies. So he is looking to God, the author and source of love, for comfort and care. He asks God to show him his steadfast love. Steadfast love is covenant love, like love within a marriage. It is the word which older versions translated loving kindness. This is love built on a promise, a covenant promise between God and his people. The book of Deuteronomy shows us this, where it says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. If you are a child of God, his love for you is steadfast, never changing, unwavering, dependable, trustworthy love. Are you facing a difficult situation in your life right now? Are you discouraged? Are you feeling unloved? I urge you to call upon God to wondrously show you his steadfast love. If you are a child of God, he has promised to never leave you or forsake you. He loves you with a covenant love. Study the scriptures and find comfort in the numerous promises of God's love 
for his people. The final promise here that David calls on God to come through on is for protection. He says, hide me in the shadow of your wings. The picture here is of a mother or father bird shielding their chicks from danger, wrapping them, covering them with their wings. Many times during our study in the book of Psalms, we have seen God referred to as a refuge in times of danger. And that picture is again used here in verse 7. Now we have another word picture, a precious image, that of being sheltered from enemies under God's outstretched arms, like a mother bird protecting its young from predators. David calls on God to come through on his promises, to answer him when he calls, to show him God's steadfast love, and to protect him from his enemies. Only now, after David has pleaded with God, pr proven his right posture, and prompted God to come through on his promises, does he list his problem. Verses 10 through 12 show us David's problem. It says, They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion, eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. So here we see David's problem. David describes his enemies, first mentioned in verse 9, as lions, predators, who stealthily stalk their prey in order to destroy them. They are pitiless, without pity in their hearts. They are boastful, arrogant in their speech. And this stands in contrast to David, where he had said of himself earlier that he had lips free of deceit, and he purposed that his mouth would not transgress. And these enemies are violent, lurking and surrounding David, eager to tear him apart. In contrast, David had said earlier that he has avoided the ways of the violent. So David here compares his enemies to a lion, which is an expression used at times in the Bible to refer to our great enemy, the devil. First Peter reminds us to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The devil and his helpers walk up and down the earth, scheming and attacking the children of God. And David refers to his enemies here in a like manner. Have you ever watched a nature documentary with lions on the hunt? They are stealthy. They hide in the tall grasses as they approach their prey, staying quiet and hidden. And the pack, the pack of lions, they work together, right, to encircle their target, leaving no avenue of escape. And then when they're ready, they launch a coordinated attack, chasing down their prey until the prey are exhausted and captured. It's amazing to watch, but it's terrifying to consider if you're the prey. Now, it's a good thing we're not likely to be in the position of a lion's prey. But if the Bible compares the devil to a lion, what does it compare us to? Oh, that's right, sheep. That doesn't sound like a good situation for us. Sheep are utterly defenseless before a lion. 
You know, just this past week, there was a great short video that went around the internet with a sheep in it. Perhaps some of you saw it. I think it was in Argentina. There was a sheep that was stuck about a foot down or so into this narrow ditch. And the guy uh, in the video, he reaches down and he slowly pulls the sheep leg first, kicking out of the ditch. And so the video continues as the sheep gets out of the ditch, shakes itself off, and starts bounding down the field. And within a matter of just a few seconds, jumps headfirst right back into that same ditch. Not exactly encouraging to watch for those of us the Bible calls sheep. But you know what? We have a shepherd. And not just any shepherd, but Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. Consider Spurgeon's commentary on this verse. We are weak and foolish like sheep, but we have a shepherd wise and strong who knows the old lion's wiles and is more than a match for his force. Therefore, we will not fear, but rest in safety in the fold. We can rest secure even while dangerous lions prowl around us, knowing that Christ is our great shepherd. And next we see here David calls upon God to act in his defense. Let's look at this last section of scripture, verses 13 through 15. It reads, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied by your likeness. And so the final point we see here is David's peace. David can rest in peace as he trusts in God to act on his behalf. And David knows where his true sense of peace lies, not in this life, but in the next. David here calls upon God's mighty power to rise up, confront, and subdue his enemies. David began his prayer with an appeal for God's attention. Then he called on God to come through on his promises, and here he now appeals to God for action. Now again, we don't know precisely when this psalm was written, but it fits in well with that time period of Saul chasing after David, seeking to kill him. And David had opportunity to take matters into his own hand. He had opportunity to confront and subdue his enemy. And remember, David was a shepherd. He wasn't afraid of lion-like enemies. As a young shepherd boy, David had bested both the bear and the lion. And of course, we know the story of his battle against Goliath. But as we've already seen, David is patiently waiting on God to act. He needed to see his enemy defeated by the hand of God, not by the hand of David. And we likewise are called to wait on God for vengeance. Romans tells us, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When we've been wronged, when we've been betrayed, we want to take matters into our own hands. We want to seek out revenge on our enemies, but we're not called to do that. That's not our job. 
we need to remember that God will make all things right and that he will visit his wrath on those who deserve it in his good timing. We also see here the contrast in where David and his enemies place their hope, where their treasure is. It says that David's enemies are men of the world whose portion is in this life. Their wombs or bellies are filled with worldly treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to them. Their earthly treasure will stay here when they die. Like the parable of the rich fool, they have taken great care to prepare for their own earthly needs, but eternity has not entered into their calculations. None of us knows when God will say to us, this night your soul is required of you. And the earthly things that they have stored up, whose will they be? You can't take your stuff with you. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These men were absorbed with earthly things, not heavenly things. That's where their hearts were. In contrast, David places his hope not in the things of this world, but in eternity with God. Verse 15 reads, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. As for me. Three little words that radically change the direction of the text. It was focused here on the earth with worldly treasures and all at once shoots heavenward with a vision of God above. David, the one who is known as a man after God's own heart, looks forward to the day when he shall see God face to face. David was confident not only of life after death in resurrection, but that he would one day see the face of God. The idea here is not merely of contact with God, but of unhindered fellowship with God. And the apostle John looked forward to such a day when he wrote, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Oh, what a glorious picture that is for those of us who are children of God. We, like David, should be eagerly looking forward to the day when we shall be with Christ. David's portion is not in this life, but in the next. His treasure is not earthly, but heavenly. His satisfaction is not in the temporary, fleeting things of this world, but in eternal fellowship with our Creator and Lord. And so this prayer ends in hope, in peace with God forever. And I think this ending helps us to see that prayer is not primarily about getting things from God, but getting God himself. In prayer, we make our requests of God, but we are not content to only receive things from God. Prayer must have God himself as its end. C.S. Lewis once said, prayer, in the sense of petition, asking for things, is a small part of it. Confession and penitence are its threshold, adoration its sanctuary. The presence and vision and enjoyment of God, it's bread and wine. The great purpose of prayer is to come before God humbly 
expectantly and boldly to plead with him, to call upon his promises, and to ultimately enjoy him as our great treasure. And so I want to ask you today, where is your hope? Is your hope in this life, in earthly things, or is your hope in the next life, in eternity with God? Treasure Jesus Christ, not the things of this world. While we cry out to God, Jesus is already at the right hand of the Father, making intercession, pleading with God on our behalf. While we confess our sins, Jesus is the one who knew no sin, but became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. While we say, show us your love, Jesus is the love of God made manifest among us. While we say, protect us from our enemies, Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep and by his resurrection has conquered our enemies, sin and death for us. And while we pray for God to come through on his promises, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Put your hope in him. Let Jesus Christ be your great treasure. Let's pray.